Um, so I start off um, many of my mornings um, reading through and praying through what I call my personal creed. Um, some of you who know me well have spent some time with me, you know, it's kind of like one of those things that I do <laughs> and encourage other people to do as well. And it's really because there are certain things that, that for me personally, I want to hang on to, I want to hold on to, that are precious, um, that are related to who God is, who I am, um, a reminder of his calling on my life. Um, the things that I wrestle with and struggle with at times and want to remember and have a biblical perspective towards. And so the very first sentence that I will read to myself and pray through for the Lord is that I belong to the Most High God who reigns and rules over all. And I put, like, I belong, and I have a little parenthesis, and it it's, has the passage 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, which reads that, You've been bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. I start off there because it's a reminder that I have been purchased by the blood of Christ. So I belong to him. And then to the Most High God who reigns and rules over all, because Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It's a great reminder that God is the one who reigns in, over all things. He is the king over all. And if you remember, if you just paid attention to the song we just sang, he's the king of my heart. See, the reality is that for me, I want to remember that he is the king of my heart, which means he needs to be the king of my entire life. So I don't know um, how many of you were here last week, we had a family service, and in that family service, at one point in time, somebody who works with the children's ministry, Katie Decker, had, she sat up here, and she, she brought, invited the kids to come up, and, and uh, she taught them a lesson, and she used this phrase that Redemption Kids uses in the back all the time, and that is that, that we are born with a, I want my own way heart. That's a great way of capturing it. Which means this, is that for us to acknowledge that he is king, Jesus is king, means that we desire that there be a transformation in our lives, especially if, you know, if we obviously have been redeemed by Christ, we are new creations in Christ, that he would take that heart that is a I want my own way heart and then turn it into I want your way heart. Which is not an easy thing to do because we tend to not like authorities in our life. Okay, that's where we're going to go today. Authorities in our life. So if you look on the next, the next slide up there, it's gonna be, we're going to talk about being good subjects. So let me tell you a story. A few weeks back, um, we have a camper. And uh, so somebody used that, and they brought it back, and they said, hey, we didn't get a chance to empty the the black storage tank. If you know anything about campers, that's the, that's the sewage. And I was telling my neighbor about that, that I need to dump that out before we actually go somewhere else. And he goes, by the way, we actually have uh, an access to our sewage line. It's got a cap on it. See, they had, um, they had uh, RVs for several years, so he had a 
a concrete pad put in, and he's got an access to that, so he can just, you know, you can just kind of just dump it right there. He goes, why don't you come over and just use our, our and get, you know, that, that access? I said, that's a great idea. I'd love to do that. And then this th- thought occurred to me. And this is going to be really surprising to the ladies in this room. And that is that we men have this thing called, uh, what's it called again? Egos. Um, And so I'm going to be backing up my camper into his driveway. Which means he's going to be telling me how to back up my camper into his driveway. Well, fortunately, God kind of prepared me for that, softened my heart as best he could. And I did that, and of course, over the course of time, he instructed several times about how I needed to correct my backing up of my camper into his driveway. I say this because we have a problem with authority, don't we? So let me just show you um, up on the screen a diagram. We as Christians have somewhat been taught, part of this accurately, some inaccurately, that, that we have a personal relationship with God, right? And so we kind of view this, how we deal with life as, it's God and it's me. And long as I'm good with God, things are going to be going well, Right? But we fail to understand sometimes this truth that we're going to see in the passage that we're going to look at today. That God has actually established three God-ordained institutions. The first one is this, government. The second one is the family or the household. And the third one is the church, which means this. Think about this for a moment. For us to acknowledge God's authority in my life, I also need to acknowledge God's authorities that he places in my life. Oh, this is going to be fun today. So let me tell you about what we're going to see in this passage coming up. We're going to look at five different areas. Okay, actually five ways to be subject to. Some of those have to do with government, some within the family, and a little bit we're going to tie into the church. Most of that's coming in two weeks when we get to chapter 5. But let me tell you some of the things we're going to see. Each one of these three have their own purpose. In other words, God has established each one of these, and each of them have a unique purpose. Not only about how God wants to use these for it accomplish his broader purposes, but also his specific purposes in each one of our lives. Secondly, each one of them have a specific authority structure. There's that word again, authority structure, okay? Third is this, each one of them have a unique set of relationships. In other words, you can't just transfer one to the other. They're all a little bit different, and they're unique how they work. Each one also has a different set of codes of conduct. How these interpersonal relationships are supposed to operate. And as you can imagine, government, the family, 
in the church, they're going to they're gonna vary. And then they all have, and I say this with fear and trepidation, very limited exemption clauses. Let me say that again. Very limited exemption clauses. Ways that if certain conditions are in play, that we do not have to obey those sets of authority structures. Now, we naturally kind of go, let's give me that list, because I'm looking for that. That's not the case. They're very limited. And this is what we're going to see also. This is the last point I want to make about this. And that is that all three of these authority structures, government, the family, and the church, are all led by imperfect people. All of them are led by imperfect people. So, where are we going to go with this? Let's talk about this. This is the main idea for this morning as we get in this passage. Here's our main idea. It's in your notes, and if you're a yeah, note taker or whatever, take a look at this. And that is that God's will is for us to be good subjects. Okay? That's his will. And though sometimes, or maybe most of the time, or maybe almost all of the time, you fill in the blank, being a good subject will be incredibly challenging or incredibly difficult or seemingly impossible. And yet, to be a good subject will glorify him and advance his kingdom. That's what we're going to see in this passage today. Are we ready? Let's pray, just to make sure we are ready. Father God, we thank you that you are good and you do good. So would you teach us your ways, as your word says. Father, to be able to be trusting in you for what your word has to say, we have to believe you. To follow through, God, with these authority structures that you have placed in our lives, it's going to require, God, for us to place ourselves sometimes in a very awkward, difficult situation. To place ourselves in a vulnerable situation to place ourselves in situations where it's quite possible we could get hurt. And yet you are good, God. You are trustworthy. And sometimes, Father, there's a a way for us to understand these things which can only allow us to comprehend that you see things that we don't see that you know things that we don't know. God, with the things that we know about you already because you sent your son Jesus to this earth to die in our place, that you have demonstrated and proven your faithfulness and your deep love for us. So while that is true, please give us faith to believe, to trust, and to walk in your ways. And Father, if there's something that 
any one of us needs to hear today. And Father, no matter how challenging it might be, help us to trust in you and be good subjects. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. If you want to grab your Bible and turn to 1 Peter. We're going to talk about being good subjects. And the first word that's going to start off is being a good subject of your government. Okay, like I said, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I'm already starting to get looks. <laughs> All right. He says it this way. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake, which is a great reminder, for the Lord's sake, for his purposes and why he desires to do it, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. Let's stop right there because it's a reminder. Here we go. That we're called to be subject to the Lord's, for for the Lord's sake, to our government. First reminder is this. That these emperors, these governors, whatever we would describe those people who are in service, are sent by him. Okay, right there we start off. Now, if you're with us a year ago, we went through the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we were reminded that Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 tells us that God removes kings and sets up kings. So God is the one who is ultimately sovereignly responsible for those who are in power. And we are reminded that we should be subject to them. And then he says this very interesting thing. Okay. Because we're called to be subject to them. Okay. As those who are called to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, I want to stop right there because I think that when we, when we think about those who God has placed in power, the first thing that we kind of think about is that, hold on a second. Doesn't it mean that it's okay for us to do that when they are good kings or good emperors or good governors or good mayors or whatever? But you see, that's not an exemption there. That's not one of the exemptions clauses. And then secondly, we look at, but, he, but the government is, is there to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And we kind of agree with that. That makes sense. That's the purpose of government, right? That's the role of government, to keep law in order. But aren't there cases where actually government has flipped this around and they're upside down? And they actually punish those who do good and praise who those who do evil. Isn't that the case? In that case, sometimes we think about that. And so, you know, as I prepare a message, oftentimes I try to think, What are the questions that are going to come up on a Sunday morning? What are the questions that are going to come up as you process what you hear and you read in in the Word of God here? And I think one of those questions is going to be, is it, what do we do when the government doesn't do what they're supposed to do? When they don't punish those who do evil and don't praise those who do good, what would be the context for that to take place? I need to actually have us pause and consider the context this is written in. See, Peter's writing in the mid-60s A.D. from Rome. I don't know if anybody ever calls him this, but this just came to me. Who is the emperor at this time? It's Nasty Nero. 
okay? This is nasty Nero. He's an evil, evil dude. And as a matter of fact, the culture is upside down. If you want to look at chapter 4, it talks about verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they're surprised when you do not join in with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. He'll say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter's writing from Rome, and he calls it she who is in Babylon. He calls Rome Babylon. A Jewish writer, Peter, calling some city Babylon is not a compliment. It's pagan. It's upside down. And yet this is the context by which Peter says, be subject to your government. So, again, doing my best to try to anticipate questions. You might be saying, are you saying, Greg, that there's never a time to disobey government, never a time to practice civil disobedience? I would say this. Let me share with you briefly what has been the, I would say, the, um, the understood principle behind civil disobedience by which the church has practiced in very limited form for centuries and in different types of setting, different type of governments, whether it's, whether it's communism or dictatorships or even democracies. Let me state the principle here. That we should and are called to disobey when a law directly causes us to disobey God or directly prohibits the obedience of God. I didn't do that well. Let me say that again. We're called to and should disobey when a law directly causes us to disobey God or directly prohibits that obedience. A very simple explanation of that or principle of that is found in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had been arrested and they're being threatened with their life and they're being told, do not any longer speak of this man named Jesus. And they reply, you judge for yourself whether it is right to obey you or God for we cannot help but speak of what we know and what we've seen about Jesus. And so they practice civil disobedience. They disobey. And then... On the other side of it is this. I'm quite certain that we can do lots of research and we can find out in our present government, in our federal government, for instance, ways that we are with, in which our tax dollars are used in a way that is evil. I'm sure we can find that. I'm sure we can. So... That helps us to think through, how does Jesus handle that issue? If you remember, Jesus was asked, should we pay taxes? That was the exact same question. See, the Rome, Roman rulers over them oppressed them. They were practicing evil over the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And so what does Jesus reply? He says, show me a coin. He grabs the coin and says, 
Whose picture and inscription's on that? They say, that's Caesar's. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and what is God, what is God's. See, if there's no direct correlation, I believe we're called to obey. Again, the context dictates that. That's where this starts. But I think more than anything, we need to grab a hold of the heart behind these commands. So let's keep on going because I think this will be very, very helpful. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, for this is the will of God. What is this? So what the writer Peter is doing, he is tying two things together. This is actually going back and looking back at it being subject to the government, okay? And then he looks forward and says, let me explain what this is as the will of God. And that is by doing good. In other words, he ties being subject to government as doing good. He puts those together. And then he tells us why that's so important. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. All right. Put to silence. What are these people saying? What are they saying? All we have to do is look up to the previous two verses. Let's look at verse 12. Remember, Peter's writing a letter. We, we break at some point in time from week to week, but this is a letter, so it's a flow of thought. And so in verse 15, when he says to put to silence, he is addressing what people are saying. What are people saying? Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. See those good deeds? And glorify God in the day of visitation. What I want you to see is this. There's an unbelieving world that looks out at us as Christians, particularly here in the context of how we handle government, how we view submission to our government. And they're going to assume that we are rebellious people, that we don't answer to our government, and they speak against us, and then they see our good deeds. And what happens? They glorify God. Let me say it this way. Christians ought to be the best citizens of any nation they're in. We should be. We should be the best citizens there are. Now look what he says next. Verse 16, live as people who are free. Okay. I want to pause there because we need to define free. I remember growing up, um, I grew up in Indianapolis. And so when I became a believer in my teenage years, I remember noticing on the cover of the Indianapolis Star, okay? If those are newspapers. I know we don't do that anymore. But, okay, a newspaper, right? Okay. And it would have the Indianapolis Star. And underneath it in script, it had, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Second Sorry, 2 Corinthians 3.17, I believe. And I go, oh, my newspaper is promoting Jesus. This is awesome. And then I read the text. I read where it comes from. Totally taken out of context. That doesn't mean that at all. Not at all. And you see, there is a tendency for us to confuse political freedom 
from New Testament freedom. They're two completely different things. See, what, um, what New Testament freedom is, it's our gospel identity. Let me, tell, let me explain how the New Testament defines what freedom is. It's freedom from law and works to earn our salvation. When I say law, I don't mean political laws or governmental laws. It's the laws of religious laws. If you're with us this past summer, we went through Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 2, we would see over and over again why those who were trying to bring law back in and they were trying to pass judgment on dietary laws, what you ate and what you drank. And did you celebrate Sabbaths and new moons and festivals? But we've been set free from those things. We do not have to try to earn our salvation through works and the law. That's what freedom is. Amen. It's exactly right. And so we also have found freedom from sin and its grip on me. You see, we don't have to sin any longer. We are free from condemnation and death. We are no longer slaves to those things, but rather, as Romans chapter 6 tells us, we are now slaves of righteousness. And that's why he says this. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then he defines what a servant of God looks like in the context of obeying the government. He makes four statements. There it is in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's what it means to be a good subject of our government. It's tempting to just stop right there because there's a lot to chew on, isn't it? That's one of our five that we're going to go through today. I promise the rest of them will go a little quicker. But I want to pause, and I want to pause after each one of them because it's worth praying through. It's worth us processing. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to pray for Redemption Church. I want to pray for myself. I want to pray for all of us. And I want to pray for your church, particularly in the U.S. We are a divided nation. And oftentimes, God, that creeps into our church. That divided people. God, help us to be people who honor everyone who love the brotherhood, who fear you, and who honor the emperor. Father, where we need to have a change of heart, would you cause us to have that change of heart and to trust you in the middle of all that? pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about servants being good subjects of your master. Now, I kind of put in the parentheses boss, maybe, because 
We don't have these type of servants in the United States. See, there's three words that are translated servant uh, from the New Testament. This one is household servant or household slaves. So we don't have that. So we can only kind of grab a hold of what is being spoken of here and, and pull principles from that. Now, if there's any teenagers in the room, you're going, well, you don't know my parents. I actually am a household slave. Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, but I think that what we can do is kind of pull in a principle from this because these don't actually exist. But if you remember, we talked about the three institutions, government, the family, or the household, and the church. And so this is beginning now to talk about the second one. This one and the next two all have to do with the household. So it says, servants, be subject to your masters. Notice this, with all respect, and this respect is to be shown not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Remember how I promised? We first started looking at all three of these things. We said all of them are going to be led by imperfect people. And so each one of them are going to have their challenges. And let's just say in the workplace, you might have a master or a boss who is unjust. And he says, whether they are or are not, treat them all with respect. I kind of think that a direct application, something that's probably pretty easy to think about, is the work setting, the work environment, where there's a boss who is not respected by coworkers or, by, or people who are underneath their authority. And it's so easy for them to be critical behind that boss's back and so easy for us to join in there. But as Christians, it's called to be subject to our masters, to show respect. It's to both the good and the Gentile. And then he says in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I think that's a bit hard to understand what he's talking about there. A gracious thing. We kind of get the idea that, okay, so if, we're, if we just kind of endure it, we come underneath that unjust treatment, we probably ought to do that, and it's a good thing. But what is the gracious thing that are mentioned both in verse 19 and in verse 20, the gracious thing. Let me just give you kind of just a real simple hint to what to do when, you're, when something's a little bit confusing in Scripture. We are reading from what's called the ESV. That's the English Standard Version. And I'm going to give you a little perspective on, on English translations, okay? The ESV is a more of a literal translation. It's kind of a word for word. Not exactly, but it's more of a literal translation. To the more literal, you have the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, okay? And then you have to the other side, the NIV, the New International Version, and then the NLT, the, the New Living Translation. I would say that's probably where we want to camp in, those, in that range, whatever. They all have their purposes. The NLT, again, and the NIV are more of a, what's called a dynamic, which essentially means that uh, how you might say it in our own vernacular, which means that there's a little bit of interpretation that's done. That's a great way of taking a look at this particular verse, these two verses, and going, well, what does that really mean? So I'm going to put up on the screen the NASB version and the NLT version. 
What does he mean by this is a gracious thing? The NASB says, for this finds favor. To endure this finds favor. At the very end, this finds favor with God. The, the NLT says, for God is pleased when we go through this. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased. Isn't that interesting? God is pleased, and he allows these things to happen in our lives. This is sometimes what means to be a good subject of our, our boss. And notice what he says in verse 21, keeping on going. He says, for to this you have been called. It's remarkable how many times this word called appears in chapter 2 and 3. For this is what you've been called. Why? Because Christ also, also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. What have we been called to? We've been called to be subject. Sometimes we've been called to suffer unjustly so that we could follow his example. We could follow in his steps. It's remarkable to think about this. We get to look and live like Jesus. And then he goes on with this remarkable description of what the example of Jesus looked like. Beginning in verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to, of him, sorry, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like a sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Many references to Isaiah chapter 53, which is a phenomenal chapter. But look at that. This is how I want to summarize it. The example of Jesus, a nasty boss is an opportunity for the gospel. A nasty boss is an opportunity for the gospel. Let's go to number third, number three. Here we go. Be good subjects. Be good sub subjects, wives, to your husbands. Notice that he starts off likewise, okay? Likewise, as he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. He starts off likewise. Why does he do that? I think there's this sense that I have been describing this pattern about the authority structures in your lives that are difficult to follow under. And as a matter of fact, they're imperfect. And now all the wives go, amen. Yep. And that's what it, is how it describes. He goes, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Notice this. So then even if some do not obey the word, in other words, wives, be subject to your own husbands even when they, he is not a believer. Be subject to them in, even when he is not a follower of Christ, when he does not obey the word of God. Now, I'm a man and I'm a husband. My job is to, to share what the word of God says. But I'll be honest, I sometimes are a loss to know how to come alongside 
a woman who has several questions about how to manage that to be subject to a husband who is not a believer, who does not have the same set of values and priorities, that's an incredible, incredibly challenging thing to do. I think that's why, for instance, Paul will tell Titus that what should be a regular pattern in churches is that older women come alongside younger women, just as older men come alongside younger men, and help them sort through these questions, because many in the church have had to deal with that question, because it's not easy. It not, it's not easy at all. And there's oftentimes a very not clear-cut way to process some of these questions. But notice this likewise again, this likewise that when we do obey, when we subject ourselves to the authorities in our lives, there's a bigger purpose in mind. And Peter will tell us what that looks like. He says that some, so that if some do not obey the word, but that they might be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, how you live your life may be the reason for your husband coming to know Jesus. How you live your life, which is a struggle times, obviously, with what to say, what not to say, but because as you live in a respectful way with pure conduct towards your husband, as you submit yourself and be subject to him, that God may be the one who's doing a work in them and through you just by how you act. Then he says in verse 3, he goes on to say, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, so this is really interesting because it's talking about this, this concept of the idea of like, where should our beauty be? Okay, I'm going to just kind of like brag on my wife, all right? Hope you guys don't mind this. My wife is incredibly beautiful. Now, she will say this. You know, I am 60 years old, so I am probably not as beautiful as I was when I was 22 and we got married. And I'll go, I didn't notice. And I think probably because she has this inner beauty. And our society and our culture so emphasizes the external beauty, not to say don't take care of yourself. I don't mean that at all, men and women. But I do say that this is what the principle that Peter drives at. Be beautiful on the inside. That's where beauty is. And so he says, don't let your adorning be external. Now, what is really interesting is that he goes on and gives what I would say examples. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, or the clothing that you wear. Okay, so I, I'm going to assume that some point in time today, there will be a woman who walks in with braided hair and gold jewelry. And they may walk out. Just kidding. No. Um, and, and 
there may be a sense, oh, wait a second, is this addressing me? If you look up on the screen, if we had more time, we don't. I would address this. I would address this question. Is this a case, the braiding of hair, putting on gold jewelry and clothing you wear, is this a, uh, something that is for people, all people for all time, or is it simply a cultural application? If you're going, okay, how do we interpret some of these type of passages? Please grab me afterwards, and I'll walk you through that. We don't have time this morning because of the, the volume of text we're going through. But that's important to look at. I would simply say this. I believe that the principle is let your adorning be external. I'm sorry, not be external. And those are examples of, of putting too much emphasis on that. But may it be inside, the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are his children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So the example, of, of course, is submission, what that looks like, and what that looks like on the inside of how beautiful that is. And then again, he ends with this very interesting statement. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, well, you can see how it might be frightening to submit to a husband not sure and not certain how he will act. That's, again, entrusting yourself to, a, to God. And I just want to just turn, have you turn if you want to, to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. This is a great reminder of maybe the, the challenge that it is to submit like this, not knowing that there's some things that we might be fearful of. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He remembers. He knows what you're going through. Okay, let's go to the fourth one. The fourth one is this. It's about husbands. Be a good subject, husband, to the Lord. Now, I don't know if you noticed that chapter 3 had six verses on women. It's got one verse on men. It's not because women need more work. It's because men are really slow, and all we can handle is very little, okay? Okay, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. But he does start it off this way. He says, likewise, okay? So he's continuing with this same concept and idea. However, this likewise does not have to do with um, earthly uh, authority structure in his life. But it really kind of jumps to our authority that we look at in terms of, of God himself. See, the reality is this. The question is, is this for husbands? How will you husbands live out being subject to the Lord in relationship with your wife. He says this. This is what it looks like. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Number one, husbands, get this. Your wife is not like you. She's different than you. She processes different than you. She views relationships different than you. She's different. Now, I think about this sometimes. I think about the hobbies that men have and we learn these hobbies, we spend some time studying these hobbies, and we, we have these interests. May your wife 
And what's going on upstairs inside of her, here and here, may be that which you study the most to understand her. That's what we're called to do, husbands. Live with your wife this way, in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Oh, isn't this going to be fun? I get to talk about women being weaker vessels. I'm going to tell you what I think about just what it means. I think it means two things. It means, number one, contextually, not only in culture, but the call that God would have in the authority structure of the home, that if a woman is to be subject to her husband, then she doesn't have as much strength in the relationship. She doesn't have as much authority as the husband has. So if she lives that way, she will be in a weaker position. I also think that it means, in general, physically weaker. So in general, that's, women are generally weaker, okay? But this is what it does mean, okay? It, this helps us to understand to showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel I want to stop in and I want to say to men, don't bully your wife. Don't intimidate your wife. Because you can. You can do that. In my years in ministry, in talk with men and couples, I am 100% convinced of this, that every man has an anger issue. All right, so I'm overstating it. 99.9% of men have an anger issue. And men typically express that verbally and physically. Some suppress it. Most of us, that's why I said us, express it overtly in words and deeds. You can intimidate your wife. Don't do it. Don't do it. You can make your wife feel unsafe or you can make her feel safe. Show honor to her, her, the woman, as the weaker vessel. This is a great reminder, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And I think this helps us to keep this whole thing in perspective. The relationship for a, with a husband and a wife, that God has ordained what that relationship looks like. But he reminds us that she is equal with us as heirs of life. And then I think Peter pulls out the trump card. He talks about how severe this is, men. How severe this is when we don't treat our wives the way we ought to. He says this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, this, ignoring these commands will impact your prayer life. It will impact your relationship with God. You wonder why God won't answer your prayers? God says, how are you treating her? How are you treating her? How are you treating her? We need to be good subjects, husbands to the Lord, recognizing our calling of how we are to treat our wives. Finally, and that's exactly how verse 8 starts off. Finally, we all need to be good subjects, all of us, since this is who we are. We're going to start off in the church. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's what the church should look like. 
And then whether it's in the church or outside of the church, this is what it looks like to be subject to who God is. It is whenever we are treated poorly, this is how we should respond. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, and he's, he's going to actually quote, I'm going to jump ahead, I'm going to quote um, verse 10 through, the, through 12 because this comes out of Psalm 34. Next week, Psalm 34 will be somewhat of an of a introduction for what Pastor Nate will be sharing in the rest of, of chapter 3 and part of 4. The context for this is King David is being chased by King Saul. King Saul in chapter, well, in, back in the Old Testament there, what has happened is that he has been, David has been anointed. Saul is jealous of and wants to kill David. And David, despite the evil that's being done to him, does not repay evil for evil because he trusts in God. And so for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's not repaying evil for evil or reviling for revival. So I want to wrap up by saying this. But on the contrary, what is our perspective? It's bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. It's a reminder that we are blessed to be a blessing, and that's our calling. I feel like I covered a ton today. And for maybe some of you, I feel like I just went through some of this pretty quickly. But I want to go back to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, because... I mentioned that for this to you were called. The called comes up like three times. So I want us to remind us of who we are, okay, as a way of wrapping this thing up before we go to communion. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've been called by God. Let's pray. Father, just uh, as we process so many things today about what it means to be a good subject, the authority structures our lives. God, we know there would be no hope unless we recognized what you've done for us, that you're a God who is trustworthy, that we can give our lives to you. We can give ourselves even over to authority structures that are challenging and difficult to, to trust and to, to follow. Ultimately, God, it's because you've got a greater purpose. You are doing things, God, that sometimes we can't understand. Just as we trust in Christ's death on the cross, we trust in his resurrection. Things that we today cannot see, God gives us the ability to trust, to follow your ways when we cannot see them as well. So, Father, would you prepare our hearts to take communion, to take the elements, giving thanks for God for what you've done for us. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.